Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to John chapter 15. As we continue our journey through this gospel, this account of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, we find ourselves, just as a reminder, we find ourselves on the eve of the crucifixion. So Jesus is with his disciples. They have shared dinner together. Jesus has not just demonstrated his humility in washing the disciples' feet, but actually sort of foretold the cleansing of sin that would come through his death, through the blood that he would shed. He told them that he was about to leave. He told them that one of them was going to betray him. Then Judas left the room. And he told them that Peter, their champion, their leader, is going to deny within the next 12 hours or so, that he even knows Jesus. So these are dark times. The disciples are understandably troubled. And so he has been speaking to them, instructing them, sort of like, once I'm gone, here are things to keep in mind. He's told them that he leaves them his peace. He's told them that he will send the Spirit of God, the Helper to, to indwell them, to live inside them, and to help them, and to strengthen them, and to remind them of all that Jesus has instructed. And he's given them a command that he's actually going to reiterate today in our text, but he gave them a command back in chapter 13, verse 31 through 35, where he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That doesn't sound very new. The new part is what comes next, where he said, just as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. So when we come to chapter 15, we get kind of this, like three movements, if you will. Jesus gives us a metaphor. He's telling his disciples about how they can continue to be a part of the life of Jesus and to carry on the work of Jesus even after he has ascended to heaven. And he opens, he gives them this metaphor of a grapevine. And he says, I am the vine and you are the, the branches. And the only way that the, the branches on this grapevine would bear fruit would be to remain vitally connected to the vine. That is, to Jesus himself. And he painted this picture of God the Father being the vine dresser, the one who, who surveys the grapevine and finds the branches that are not connected and cuts them off. And the ones that are connected and are bearing fruit, he prunes so that they might bear more fruit. So again, we get this, this metaphor about the, the life of the Christian in relationship to Jesus. And so those first 11 verses of John 15 that we looked at last week really are the relationship of Christians to Jesus, all right, the branches to the vine. This is how you will bear fruit, by abiding, remaining 
in me, letting my word abide in you. In the verses we'll look at today, this is kind of the second part of these three movements, we're going to see Christians' relationship to each other, the branches to the branches, if you will. And then in the last part of chapter 15 that we'll get to next week, beginning in verse 18, we see the Christian's relationship to the world. So you've got vine to branch, and then branch to branch, and then branch to the world, right? Maybe the greater vineyard, if you will. And so there are some warnings and instructions that will, and encouragements that will come from there. But we find ourselves right in the middle of uh, this three-part movement. And so the focus of the verses today is really the relationship of the branches to one another. This is the relationship of Christians, of Jesus followers, to other Jesus followers. So let's read these verses together and then we'll, um, we'll see what unfolds and what we find here. So I'm going to read verses 12 through 17 of John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So this is the paragraph that we're going to spend some time in today. And it's interesting because it's bookended, started and ended, with this command for Christians to love each other. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Which is exactly what he commanded them back in chapter 13. And then it ends in verse 17 with a restatement of that. These things I command you so that you will love one another. But interestingly, the sentences in the middle of that love one another sandwich have mostly to do with Jesus and his love for us. It's more about how Jesus has loved his disciples than it is about the specifics of do this, don't do that, say this, don't say that, how Christians relate to one another. And I, I think it's because Jesus knows that we learn how to love each other by considering the ways in which Jesus has loved us. I think we only know what love is, according to 1 John 3.16, by looking at Jesus' sacrificial love for us. You know that verse, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And then watch what comes next in that verse. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So we see and consider Jesus has given himself up for us. And then in response to that, we ought to love the brothers. That is the family of God. The brothers and sisters who we are connected to. 
because of our common faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the point that I think Jesus is kind of implicitly making in this paragraph. Love one another, here's how I've loved you, love one another. The quality and extent of our love for one another will be defined by the depth of our understanding and receiving of Jesus' love for us. I'm going to say that one more time. The quality and extent of our love for one another will be defined by the depth of our understanding and receiving of Jesus' love for us. If we want to obey the command of Jesus to love the brothers, to love the family of God, to love other Christians, we have to be very intimately acquainted with Jesus' love for us, to know what love looks like, and to be compelled to share that love. So, as I said, most of this paragraph is actually about the love of Jesus for his people. And I think we see four ways that Jesus expresses his love for his people in these verses. And so we're just going to walk through these four expressions of Jesus' love. And my hope is that from this sense of and this understanding of the nature of Jesus' love for us and how he's expressed it, we will learn how to love one another. We will learn within the church how to care for and treat one another. Well, The first thing that we see of Jesus' love in these verses is that he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. Look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now that sounds very theoretical and third person talking about some person who might give his life. However, the context of these verses reminds us that the cross is just around the corner. The shadow of the cross looms over this whole conversation. The the washing of the disciples' feet as a picture of the cleansing of sin that the cross would provide. And and all of these, these commands and instructions are in light of the fact that he's about to go to the cross. And then eventually, after that, return to his Father in heaven. So when he says, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, he has in view the cross, where he is about to lay down his life, literally, for his people. He is going to the cross. And he's told them that after this all goes down, then you'll remember the things I've said to you. I'm telling you this now so that after it happens, you will know. You will believe. That's the thing, the thing he's been saying to them uh, throughout these verses. And then they'll remember. So, when he says, love one another as I have loved you, he means, as I am about to love you by bearing your sins and the sins of all those who will trust in me. That's what is in view here. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus is about to literally and tangibly express that kind of love by willingly going to the cross, not for any wrong of his own, because he was innocent, but for our wrong, for our sin, for the sin of his disciples, for the sin of any who would trust in him. 
I like what Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, says about uh, the superiority of Jesus' love. So Jesus couches it in terms of the greatest of love, right? And the greater love has no one than this. In speaking of the, quote, excellency of the love of Christ, he says this, He has not only equaled, but exceeded the most illustrious lovers. Just meaning people who love one another, not anything romantic there. Others have laid down their lives, content that they should be taken from them. But Christ gave up his, was not merely passive, but made it his own act and deed. It wasn't just that he like, was standing there and decided not to fight back when they came and got him, but he set things in motion whereby his life would be given away. It was an act of his own will. Henry continues, The life which others have laid down has been but of equal value with the life for which it was laid down. So if a person dies for another person, the lives are at best just of equal value and perhaps less valuable. But Christ is infinitely more worth than 10,000 of us. Others have thus laid down their lives for their friends, but Christ laid down his for us when we were enemies. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us. So the superiority of Jesus' love is expressed in the way that he gives himself up for us, in that he is worth more than we are. So his life for ours is an uneven trade, to say the least. He gives up his innocent, spotless, pure, holy, divine life for murderers and thieves and cowards and liars like us. The superiority of Jesus' love could hardly be overstated. Greater love has no one than this. So when he says, love one another as I have loved you, you can scarcely imagine what this calls us to. The kind of care for one another that we should express Perhaps there would be a situation where we would literally need to give up our lives for the sake of another. Would you be willing for another brother or sister in Christ? That's a hard question to answer. But probably more often and more practically in our lives, we might not be called on to literally die for somebody, but how could we and are we likely to be called upon to make sacrifices for one another? to give preference to someone else in the body of Christ, to give up our own rights, preferences, privileges, honors for the benefit of someone else. I heard someone once define love as at my expense for your benefit. That's the nature of Jesus' love. And that's the kind of love he calls us to, at my expense for your benefit. And no one has loved greater than Jesus. There's been no greater love and will be no greater love than that expressed by Jesus. There's this old hymn. It's not well known these days, tragically. Maybe I'll introduce it to you sometime. But it's called, My Song is Love Unknown. Listen to the first stanza of this hymn. My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? 
There is no greater love than the love of Jesus for his people. And that's the love that he calls us to extend to one another in the family of God. So how does he love us? First, he laid down his life for us. He demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Number two, he calls us his friends. This ought to give you pause. Good verse 14 and 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I have made known to you. The phrase, the notion of someone being a friend of God is really only given to Abraham. In all the Bible, Abraham is the only one that, that has this phrase, friend of God. God does say that about Moses in the book of Exodus, that he spoke with him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. But the phrase friend of God is only given about Abraham. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, and then repeated again in James 2, 23, that Abraham was called a friend of God. The idea of a creature, a created human being, and a fallen human being, a sinner, being a friend of God, seems so unlikely, seems so remarkable. And that's the very thing that God said, not just of Abraham, but now Jesus says to all of his disciples, I have called you friends. You are friends. It's natural for us to think in terms of Jesus being our master and us being his servants, or Jesus being our king and us being his subjects. Those are right. Those are biblical. Those are true. But to think of ourselves as Jesus' friends is so staggering to me. The intimacy, the care, the affection that is implied in that term, that we are his friends. How do we know we're his friends? Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. Remind me, you remember he said, uh, back up just a few verses earlier, toward the end of chapter 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So obedience and love go hand in hand in the mind of Jesus. So when he says, love me, he means keep my commands. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And so I think that the, the, the connection there is that our obedience to Jesus is no longer driven by fear or by just mere servitude and self-preservation, but by gratitude by love. We're motivated to obey the commands of Christ because we love him. I think that's what it means here. You are my friends if you obey my commands. Which means if you obey my commands, it's because you love me. That's how you keep my commands. So we're not to obey Jesus merely as a slave obeys his master. We're to obey him as friends. It's so remarkable. One commentator said, the radical grace of the gospel transforms servanthood into friendship. Only grace can free us to obey Jesus out of friendship and worship and no longer out of fear 
or self-interest. How do we know we're his friends? He has revealed his father's plan to us. He said, I don't call you servants any longer because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. In other words, the servant just has a task. Just go do that thing. You don't ask questions. You don't have to understand what it's contributing to, what I'm after. Just do what you're supposed to do. That's what a servant does. He says, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends because I have told you what my father is doing. The gospel, the invitation for sinners to come to him through faith in Jesus Christ and receive new and eternal life. This is the plan of God. And he's told them all along, the work of God, the, the, the will of God the Father is that Jesus would keep all those that he gave to him. So the disciples now know God's plan. They know God's will. He has revealed it to them. And so they're not just merely following commands blindly without understanding. They know, and we know, because we have the mind of Christ given to us in the scriptures, we know why we obey. We know the purpose, the greater plan of God that our obedience contributes to. He is building his kingdom. He is inviting people into his family. He is gathering his sheep from around the world. And he's using us and our words and our lives and our actions to carry it out. Now, obviously, he's not revealed all things. So when he says, I, all that I've heard from my father, I've told to you, he doesn't mean literally everything, right, that I have said or that my father knows I've told you. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 has become one of my favorite verses. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord. I think there's a pretty big category of stuff that we just need to go, that's his, that's secret. I don't know it. I don't understand it. That's the Lord's. But the next part says, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children. So God has revealed his will. He's revealed his plan. He's revealed his heart. And that's for us. The mind of God, the plan of God is ours to know and to pursue. He has given us, 2 Peter 1.3, all things that pertain to life and godliness for the doing of his will. He has revealed them to us. And that is an example of, or a proof of, our friendship with Jesus. We're no longer just servants. We're friends because we know his heart. We know his plan. So Jesus shows his love for us in that he lays down his life. And he shows his love for us in that he calls us friends. third way we see in this passage that Jesus shows his love for us is that he chose us to carry on his work. He chose us to carry on his work. Look at the first part of verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. A few things to say about this. Jesus' sovereign choice eliminates pride. It eliminates pride. There's no room. Peter, James, John, Philip, Andrew, these guys couldn't say, man, we made the right choice, didn't we? We are super smart. We got our act together and we followed Jesus because we knew that was the best thing to do, right? But nobody gets to do that. Jesus says, I picked you out. I chose you. 
He says to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Which, which is not literally true, that to say that they didn't choose him. In fact, they did choose him. They chose freely to, to leave their homes and jobs to follow Jesus. And we read several of their, those accounts in the Gospels. Even the beginning of John, we saw several disciples making that decision to leave their nets behind and to, and to follow after Jesus. So he doesn't mean to negate their personal freedom, if you will, their, their choice their responsibility to respond appropriately to the call of Jesus in the gospel. Rather, he draws their attention to his sovereign purposes and designs, even regarding those individuals who would follow him out of the world. You did not choose me, but I chose you. In other words, I chose you first. My choice preceded your choice. Yes, you chose, but you were drawn you chose, but my choice preceded yours. Jesus has said things along these lines already in the Gospel of John, back in John chapter 6, verse 65. He says, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. When Jesus called himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10, he spoke of the sheep that belonged to him because God had given them to Jesus. And that Jesus' job as the shepherd was to keep them and to make sure that none of the sheep that God gave him were lost. That's the mission of Jesus, if you will. And the point of it is that there's no room for human boasting before God about our life in him. Look at 1 Corinthians, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 26. says, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You are not related to Jesus as a friend, as a servant, as one of these branches in the, the grapevine, if you will, because you're so smart or you're so good-looking or you're so talented or you're so wealthy or whatever. That has nothing to do with it. God chose, in fact, this is a little humbling, in fact, it says that God chose the foolish things and the weak things and the shameful things to shame the things that were strong and wise and noble so that the one who boasts might boast in the Lord. So just as Jesus' disciples freely chose to follow him, they did choose to follow him. So we must exercise the freedom of our will to place our trust in Jesus Christ and yield to him our lives and futures. But what we find when you dig a little deeper is that underneath, behind, and preceding our own act of the will in choosing to follow him, he has been mysteriously and sovereignly at work in our hearts, drawing us toward him. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. The very reason that we're enabled and freed to love him 
and to trust him and to obey him is because he loved us first. He took the divine initiative, if you will. So Jesus' sovereign choice eliminates our pride. Second thing to say is that Jesus' sovereign choice commissions us to kingdom work. Look at what he said in, in, in verse 16. I chose, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. What's the purpose of the choosing of the disciples and the choosing of his followers even now? That they would bear fruit. That we would go in the name of Jesus, preach the gospel, invite people in, and see his kingdom grow. To see his sheep around the world gathered and brought in. This reminds me of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2. Verse 10, where he says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's chosen us to commission us. He's chosen us and appointed us to bear fruit. He sends us out into the world as his workers go and bear fruit. Now, I recognize that this interplay between the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man in our salvation is tough and sticky and challenging and it makes us feel funny and we'd rather not think about it. And we've probably all gotten into arguments about it at various points with people in our lives. But I think what we've got to remember here is that first of all, God's bigger than we are. He's smarter than we are. He's wiser than we are. We can't see all of his ways. We don't understand. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, right? So sometimes we fight real hard to try to like make everything fit real neatly and tidily together, tie a little pretty bow on it. Here's how all this works out. Because we like systems. And I don't think the Bible always gives us systems. Sometimes the Bible gives us truths that we need to affirm. And sometimes those things seem at intention with one another. And I think it's important that rather than denying one or the other of the truths, we affirm what the Bible affirms. And to the extent that we can't quite make it all fit the way we want it to fit, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, right? So we affirm what scripture affirms. But we need to recognize the work of God in the saving of sinners is for his glory. It's for his name to be made known. It's for the kingdom of Christ, the, the sheepfold of Jesus to be gathered in. And so he sends us out. If your notion of the, the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners leads you to sit on your couch and go, God's just going to bring people in as a, whenever he will. So I'm just going to eat some more Cheetos, watch some more Netflix. Then you're way off. Right? No notion of God's sovereignty gives us permission to sit around and be lazy. Because he, say, he chose us to work, to go, and to bear fruit. So if your theology of the sovereignty of God and salvation doesn't send you, it's not Jesus' notion of God's sovereignty in salvation. We need to be careful about that. But we were chosen by him to carry on his work. And that is love. He chose us out of the world. He said one of the things that's so remarkable to me as a kind of a parallel, when he chose the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, he chose the nation of Israel as his people. Uh, it tells us in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4 maybe, I can't remember exactly. But he says, I chose you 
to be my people. Why did I choose you? It was not because you were so great in number or because you were so powerful. In fact, you were small in number and you were weak among the nations. I chose you because I set my love upon you to make you my own. Kind of like, I chose you because I chose you. I loved you because I decided to love you. Like, that's the freedom of God. He loves who he loves. He has mercy on whom he loves. Mercy, compassion on whom he has compassion. Praise God, he has shown compassion to us and invited us into his family to work. Final way in this passage, I think we see the love of Jesus for us, for his followers, is that he invites us to the throne of grace. He invites us to the throne of grace. I have in mind the act of, of prayer, of going to God in prayer. Look at the second half of verse 16. He said he'd appointed you to bear fruit and that your fruit would abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And we have a strong uh, invitation and promise here regarding the life of prayer for a Christian, for someone who's connected to the vine of Jesus. A few observations. Number one, we come to God as Father. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. God is creator. God is ruler. God is judge. It makes sense to go to God on those terms. To go to God as a servant might cowering go into the presence of his master. Can I please have audience with you? Jesus says, you get to go to the Father. Remember back in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, when he was teaching his disciples how to pray? That's the very first line. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. To, to think that we get to go to God as our Father is an amazing invitation. He loves us. He calls us his sons and daughters. Galatians 4, 6 says that because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Jesus himself says in John 20, we're not there yet, but in John 20, verse 17, after he's risen from the dead, and he tells his disciples, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. <laughs> my Father is your Father. God the Father is yours. He's your Father. So we approach God in prayer as Father. We approach him as Father. Secondly, we come in prayer on the authority of Jesus I think that's what he means when he says, in my name. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So we've got to think about this for a minute. What does it mean to, to, to ask God something in Jesus' name? Does it just mean we tack on the words in Jesus' name to the end of our prayer and suddenly everything we just asked, God's obligated to give it? Is that what it means? When I was in high school, Clifton High School, little bitty town in Texas, uh, there was a strict policy that no student should be in the hallway during class. And they enforced that thing. If you were in the hallway without permission, you got busted. You'd be in detention, it would be bad, all right? Well, I remember one time being sent on an errand by my band director, Mr. Farrell was his name. Mr. Farrell sent me on an errand to the office to ask the principal a question. I wish I could remember the specific question, I don't. But I remember that I was supposed to find Mr. Massey, our principal, who was like six foot eight, and like one eye was a little bigger than the other, and he was like an intimidating dude. Like he looked down at you like this, 
I remember, I was just kind of afraid of Mr. Massey. I just remember that. So Mr. Farrell sent me on this errand to, during class to go down the hall to the office and to ask Mr. Massey a question. Being in the hallway was strange. It was like still and empty and silent and I'm walking down the hall. I shouldn't be doing this, right? And the moment that I opened the door to the office, I felt a twinge of fear. Like, what are they going to think when I open the door? Is the principal's assistant who's going to see me going to scold me, going to gripe at me. What are you doing out of class, right? So very quickly, as soon as uh, I got, uh, made eye contact with her, I was very quick to invoke the name of Mr. Farrell. I'm here on Mr. Farrell's business, right? I'm here because Mr. Farrell sent me. And immediately upon just saying, I'm here for Mr. Farrell, I was immediately given access to the principal, to Mr. Massey. And then Mr. Massey himself walked out into the office and said, what can I do for you? And whatever it was the question I asked to, to Mr. Massey directly, I'm here for Mr. Farrell, right? On my own as a student, I didn't have the authority. I didn't have the right to approach the principal during class. I was off limits, right? You don't go to the principal's office during class on your own. I invoked the name of Mr. Farrell and pointed to his credentials, his authority, and suddenly... I was given welcome audience with the principal. That's, I think, what it means to approach the throne of God, the Father, in the name of Jesus. It means on the basis of Jesus' credentials, on the basis of Jesus' authority, we have welcome audience with God. We come to God, the Father, in the name of Jesus, on the basis of His identity on the basis of his sinless life and his death in my place and his resurrection all applied to me on his authority amazing we come on the authority of jesus and finally uh, the, the last thought on prayer is that we come with confidence that he will answer our requests what did he say that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. I need to be careful about what I, how I apply this because I said something about a car and wanting a new car and a truck a few weeks ago and then like somebody hit my car and it went a little weird. So I'm not going to go that direction, all right? But let's go back to the scene uh, in my high school principal's office to, to maybe illustrate something I have in mind here. So if... I was on this errand for Mr. Farrell, my band director, and I made it to the principal's office and I said, I'm here for Mr. Farrell. And then Mr. Massey, the principal, came out into the office and said, what can I do for you? If I had said, I would like to ask your permission to skip school on Friday, how do you think that would go over? How do you think Mr. Massey would respond to my being out of class in the hall, in the principal's office, requesting an audience with Mr. Massey to say, hey, can I have Friday off? probably would not have gone very well. My access to the principal was granted not only on the authority of my teacher, Mr. Farrell, but also on the assumption that I would use that opportunity to do my teacher's business and not bring my own petty request to him. I have an audience with the principal. I better make sure that I'm doing my teacher's business when I'm there and not just whatever comes to my mind. I had no assurance whatsoever that Mr. Massey would grant me Friday off school simply because I asked him, but I did have confidence that he would appropriately and accurately reply to the business for which Mr. Farrell had sent me there. 
In fact, I'd suggest that using Mr. Farrell's name and credentials in order to gain access to Mr. Massey and then asking him instead for Friday off would have been an insult to the principal and an abuse of my teacher's authority. And I think that ought to inform our prayer. When we approach the Father in prayer, we ask for things in Jesus' name, we are to be about the business of Jesus. We're coming on the authority of Jesus and we're asking for his sake. We're asking to be about his business. When we ask our Father for what we know is dear to his heart, for what we believe will further equip us to abide in the vine and to bear more fruit, we can be confident that whatever we ask the Father in Jesus' name, he will give it to us. So this is not to be seen as blanket guarantee that whatever whim or desire you have, go tell it to God and he is bound to give it to you because you said Jesus' name. That's not what this means. I come to God in prayer in the authority of Jesus and in, for the sake of the business of Jesus, which is abiding in the vine, which is bearing fruit, which is expanding the kingdom of God. If that's my heartbeat in prayer, if that's the mindset that I carry into the throne room when I meet God in prayer, I can be confident that he will meet me there and he will answer those requests. So he invites us into the throne room. He invites us to come to the Father in prayer. So this paragraph really, again, unfolds for us the ways that Jesus has loved us. He laid down his life for us. He called us his friends. He, and he chose us to carry on his work. And then number four, he invites us into the throne room to speak to God our Father. And somehow all of this description of Jesus' love for us is sandwiched by this command to love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the upshot of all of this. That's the result of it. As we look at the love of Jesus, we consider the ways that Jesus has expressed his love to us. We're supposed to bend that outward and love one another in the church in the same way. I'll say this again, as I said at the beginning, the quality and extent of our love for one another will be defined by the depth of our understanding and receiving of Jesus' love for us. If we struggle to extend grace and forgiveness to those in the church who have wronged us, it is because we have failed to appropriately grasp the depth of patience and forgiveness that Jesus has to extend to us in order to call us friends. To the extent that we struggle to forgive, to accept, to welcome, to challenge, to carry out the one another commands all over the New Testament, in the life of the church. To the extent that we struggle with those things, it's because we have failed to grasp the depth of Jesus' love and grace and patience to us. John Calvin said, Those hearts must be harder than iron or stone, which are not softened by such incomparable sweetness of divine love. When we consider the love of Jesus Christ, we ought to be moved and softened and compelled to love one another. I'm going to conclude by reading to you from 
1 John chapter 3. This is the same John who writes this gospel in one of his letters later in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 3. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray.